Uh, good morning with this uh, second class. I usually always will start a couple minutes early, so thus we can end a couple minutes early. Hopefully you can get to the uh, lunch window before everyone else does, and then obviously give, give you a little bit more free time. So yeah, so we'll, if you have yeah, to go to the class selective ends, head over here. Like I said, we'll usually try to start about five to seven minutes uh, early. Um, my name is Justin Pillsbury. Uh, I'm at Cahaba Park Church in Birmingham, Alabama. I've been there five years um, before that. Uh, was in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, first press for eight years, but uh, grew up in Texas, just continue to make my way further south, uh, have loved living uh, in Birmingham, and then I have my wife is a mother baby nurse in Birmingham, they got two boys, third and fifth grade, and they have maintained, thankfully, a love for TCU and Texas Tech, even in the heart of the SEC. Um, and for me this year, was kind of good with Texas Tech, they won track and field, they won the national championship. Uh, baseball right now. They're still one of uh, seven teams remaining after winning yesterday. And then um, one thing I never thought I would utter was I was leaving church um, and I was like, it was on a Monday night national championship game. I was like, I'm going to watch Texas Tech play for a national championship. My fellow brethren that are Alabama fans are like, hey, no big deal. We're in national championships every year. Hey, who cares? Uh, but for me, I was like, wow, this is, I'm actually watching one of my teams play for a national championship in a major sport. So enjoyed it. Um, that's a little bit um, about me. One of the things that I like to do each day is give away books. Um, one of the things I would encourage you to do is go by the book table. Um, I know many of you are probably like me and others. Netflix is a beautiful thing. A binge every now and then can be a good and okay thing. But I would also encourage you binge on these books, the books that are at the book table. There are many great options. Um, pick one of those up, talking to some of y'all beforehand. Obviously, you may have that 12, 15. Does anybody have a longer bus ride than 15 hours? How long? <laughs> What'd you say? 32. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, that, Yeah. so pick up like 19 books. Um, you know, uh, that, will, that will help. Um, but the two books I have today, um, the other thing I want to do, just good authors. Kevin DeYoung has written a number of books. Um, anything he has written, pick it up. It'll be worth the read. Um, a lot of his books, like you'll see like this, this is not a very long book, but it gets straight to the point. One of the questions I get often over the years in youth ministry is, hey, what is God's will for my life? Um, should I go to this college? Eventually, hey, who should I marry? What should I do for a career? Do I need to take a gap year? Um, and Kevin DeYoung does a great job of taking us to Scripture and what does the Bible say. And he kind of gives a little hint of just do something. We are very good in our culture about pondering and thinking and analyzing, but not doing anything. And scripture's encouraging us to do something. So Kevin DeYoung, and one of the questions I've asked in the past, I always like to throw a Taylor Swift question in there. One, in the past, I've asked if you can name three of Taylor Swift's former boyfriends, um, which is always an entertaining question. Won't use that one today. She does have a new album that's coming out. Does anybody know the date? Oh, look at that. There we go. August 20th. August 23rd. There it is. Um, and then the other book. Uh, I don't get to say this often. Uh, this is, I know the author very well. Um, many of y'all may have even been in his class. Uh, but one of the things I have enjoyed over the years is sitting down with John and just talking a lot of youth ministry, talking life. One of the things that you've seen in recent years with studies, culture at large as well as especially in teenagers, is anxiety and depression are on the rise. And John does a great job of talking about that. 
uh, in this book, and I love just the tagline, fighting our lesser fears with a greater one. So would encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. And the second question I have for those of us, I think there are a few in this room from Alabama, maybe, obviously. Our, our, our elevation level is not very high there. Uh, does anybody know what our elevation is here? With Oh, that hand went up fast. Wait, with like... Our elevation right here at Estes Park within 200 feet. Within 200 feet? Within 200 feet. So I'm going to guess 7,800. 7,800? Mm -hmm. Ooh, this is... I'm going to... It's so close I have to get to you. It's 8,010. <laughs> <laughs> so close enough to 200 feet. So stop by... Stop by the book table. Um, look over. Lots of good books. Be giving away more tomorrow. Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you, um, we'll be in the book of Jude. Uh, for most of you, that is going to take up one page in your Bible. So we're actually going to study an entire book of the Bible today. And uh, this book is going to kind of serve as a springboard for Wednesday and Friday as well. This letter is brief, but it packs a very powerful punch as it teaches us how to nourish a soul that will endure. Because this life, it's going to come at us in a number of ways, in a lot of ways we didn't expect. We, us, others around us, are deeply struggling, as so often we just pretend everything's okay. Um, and everything's not okay, but Jude helps us with the fact that not everything is okay. And as we begin to look at this book, Jude's message is clear. He gives it to us there in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that the New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament written in Hebrew, which you'll see that New Testament word for contend um, is one that conveys this earnest fight um, any of y'all cross-country or long-distance runners? Um, long-distance, is, is it painful at all? Yeah. yeah, and if you try and go run eight miles right now up here, uh, especially if you came from where I did, it is going to hurt. Lungs are going to burn. You will be in agonizing pain. Um, that is one of the things it had in mind with this word content is the agonizing pain of a long-distance race. It was also a military combat word for hand-to-hand. Um, so when a Roman soldier would engage with an enemy. So that's the, that's the term that Jude is using with this contend. It's because he's saying in the Christian life, if we don't contend, we're going to lose ground. But Jude's message is not just, hey, go out there and try harder. Or, hey, you just be stronger than everybody else. Or, hey, you just actualize it and it will really happen. No, it's rooted in the beauty of the call. And it's as the Christian remembers what God has called them from, it will nourish their soul as we fight for the faith, fight for the heart, and as we fight for others. So before we look at this great book, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you through your word you give life. We thank you for a week like this. We thank you for the setting that we're in. And Lord God, as we are surrounded by your glory and majesty. Lord, pray that if we don't know you, Lord, that you would open our eyes for the first time. And Lord, we would take in the beauty of your grace. And Lord God, for those that know you and your love has changed us, Lord God, I pray, Lord, that we would fall further in love with you as you nourish our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from the book of Jude. Jude, 
a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever.
Well, the first way for the Christian to nourish the soul, we see it in the first two verses, is to remember the call. Um, do any of y'all know whose brother, you know, who Jude's brother was? You get that? James. James. James and Jude were brothers, and they also had another brother that we might be familiar with. Half-brother Jesus? Jesus, uh-huh. Half-brother Jesus. And so we're hearing from one who has just this different knowledge about the Son of God. Shared the same parents, shared the same household. Maybe they shared the same room. You know, the conversations that would have taken place. But the one thing we know about Jude is he didn't believe that his brother was the Son of God until after his death and resurrection. And the thing is, that can be very similar to some of us in this room. We've grown up in the church. We've heard a lot about Jesus Christ. But we've never truly believed, even though we've been surrounded by him our entire lives. And so Jude, one of the things that he does, because he knows who his brother is now, what he wants to root us in, and that's why he begins his letter with us, with this, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called is one of the most frequent one-word descriptions of the Christian that we see in Scripture. And so kind of what does it mean that the Christian is called? It's not just God's invitation to save us. It's God's determination to save us. And it's statements like that why I love Reformed theology. Because it's reminding me, it's not my determination that saved me. It's God's determination that has saved me. And God's determination to save me, it's stronger than years ago when you had junior high girls going after a Bieber or Jonas Brothers autograph. It's even stronger than LeBron James coming down the lane as someone as puny and pathetic as me. God's relentless pursuit of our sin-wreck lives has saved us. Not us coming to him first, but God coming to us first. We are Christians because God purposely, graciously, and effectually called us. And if we let those truths settle into the deep parts of our hearts, it will begin to breathe incredible life into our souls. And it's going to bring that nourishment that we're longing for. But one of the things we have to remember is we are not Christians because we are morally superior. God is not measuring, here's our good deeds, here's our bad deeds, and as long as those good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then God will love us. It is not based upon what we do to merit God's love. And then also as Christians, we have to remember we are not intellectually superior. And if we come from the Reformed faith, or we go to a Presbyterian church, or sometimes even attend a conference like this, RYM Colorado, we need to make sure that we don't become a pompous, reformed fool because it becomes very easy for our heads to become big and our hearts to become very small. And what we have to remember as those that love reformed theology, that love maybe even like me, go to a Presbyterian church, we need to remember that we should be some of the most tender-hearted people around because we remember what we've been called from and that we are kept in the love of God. And since it's God's determination to save us, there is nothing more secure than the Christian being kept by God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no stronger security system available on the face of the earth. Your parents can put all the trackers on you. They can put video cameras in your car, video cameras in your room, everywhere. Nothing is more secure than the Christian being kept in the hand of God. And that is why I love the lines in In Christ Alone that say, 
no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. If you're a Christian, take great confidence and joy that we are kept by God the Father. And then the other thing that this short two-verse intro does is Jude's invitation to also review that remarkable calling. Uh, I live in the South, grew up in Texas. I love college football. Anybody else in this room that likes college football? All right, we got a few. All right. Well, one of the things, if you watch college football, a common phrase that you will hear is, upon further review. And most times like, oh, another replay. Usually, not always, replay shows what really happened. And as you slow it down, you can see exactly what happened. And for us, let's just say we take the last six months of our lives and we put it in a sense in slow-mo. And then we say, hey, let's go take that and let's go play it on the screens in the auditorium. What's going to be our reaction? We're going to hop on that Greyhound bus that Kurt talked about last night in the introduction. We're going to be gone. We're out of here. We're done. Because the thing is, is we know the last six months of our lives, there are so many, we can say, flags on the play. There are so many reasons for what just happened in the last six months that God should not love us. But he does. And that's why we can look back at our lives and we can actually rejoice. Because, Lord, you have called me from that darkness. You are in the process of that, that great word, sanctification, making me more like you so that you're increasing and sin and myself are decreasing. And so Jude is saying, review that calling. Review it often. And as we review that calling, it's going to remind us of how much we are loved and that nourishes our soul. One other thing to kind of ponder for a moment, one of the kind of buzzwords of the day is tolerance. And a lot of people are saying, hey, you Christians, you Christians, you just need to be more tolerant. God was not tolerant with us. He wasn't tolerant by saying, hey, Justin, you just do what you want to do. That's good for you. boy." He says, Justin, I will not tolerate sin destroying you any longer. I have called you and I will keep you. Sin no longer holds dominion over you. That for the Christian is a speechless moment and one that feeds our thirsty souls. The second way the soul is nourished is by fighting for the faith. And we see this in verses 3 through 19. Verses 3 and 4 specifically spell it out as it says, beloved. And again, just those words, remember, beloved. We are beloved in God. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you again to contend, what we talked about earlier, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, one of the things in the Christian life is we need to know there will always be opposition for those that love Jesus because there are those that oppose the faith because the gospel doesn't line up with their personal preferences. And the opposition to the gospel it's getting stronger, and it's getting louder. And even where I live, in, in what's referred to as the Bible Belt, the South, it is no longer popular to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And the opposition, what it's going to do, it's going to try and slowly take our eyes 
off of Jesus. It's going to try and get us to look to the creation around us saying, this world around you is what will really satisfy you. And they want us to live like the world around us. So what are some of the ways in which the opposition might creep in? Um, Usually it's not going to be uh, obvious, just kind of like on the football field. If you got a receiver running down the field and the cornerback forgets to pick him up, he's not, you know, hey, cornerback, I'm wide open, come get me. That doesn't happen the way. If you're on the basketball court and you're wide open, you're like, hey, come defend me. It's subtle. And the thing is, the way in which some of these subtle things will come in is we might begin to look for the approval from those around us instead of the approval we already have in God. We might find greater joy in the vacation we take than the God who made that vacation destination. We might be more eager to turn on the football game when we get home from church than we ever were interested in going to church. We might long for a relationship like a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or one day marriage than communion and a relationship with God. We may get more excited when someone follows us or likes our posts than we rejoice over God who saves sinners like us. Or we may begin to think that someone or something will bring that lasting joy. And so what Jude does in verses 5 through 19 is he gives us a history lesson to kind of reinforce and remind us, here's what happens to those individuals who listen to the world around them instead of the God who created them. In a sense, thus those who are rejecting the authority of God. And if you look at verse 5, it mentions Egypt. Was Egypt at one time a powerful country? Yeah, one of the most powerful in the world. Is it a powerful world power today? No. And many of you know the story. Obviously, the Israelites in captivity, you have Moses going before Pharaoh. Eventually, ten plagues come through. The final one, the death of the first one, Pharaoh sends them out. And then you have Pharaoh's army, the Red Sea, had been parted for the Israelites, falls and destroys. And Egypt is never the same again. And one of the things that we can be as Americans prone to be is, hey, America is always going to be this strong beacon of world power. I can trust. I can put my faith in America. If any of you have really looked at history, do world powers stay dominant forever? No. And so even as great as our country is, it's not strong enough to support and give lasting satisfaction. Egypt is that reminder. Then you get verse 7. You get Sodom and Gomorrah, a city where people were very comfortable with sin. And with Sodom and Gomorrah, you have Lot and his family leaving. And as Lot's wife, what does Lot's wife do? She looks back on that city of sin that she loves so much. And she turns to a pillar of salt. And it's that reminder, it was her sin that ultimately destroyed her. And then Jude continues with those lessons with Cain and Balaam in verse 11. Cain killed his brother because he was looking to himself, and God brought punishment. God uses a talking donkey, Shrek before Shrek, to stop Balaam in his tracks and in his sinful pursuit. And Jude helps us as he summarizes the characteristics of these individuals who want to destroy our faith Verse 16, where it says this, Grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. These are pretenders who act this way to try and make, to try and make their lives go better. In a sense, we could say that their mission statement in life is it's all about me. And one of the things that the enemy 
one of the great lies that he has woven into our culture that we, man, we buy so quick is that if I make this life about me, then I will finally be happy. It's why so many high school students, when they leave and go to college, it's like they're so excited because it's like, I can finally do what I want to do. But the thing is, is there's many college students, they get on that path and they realize this was not as satisfying as I thought it was going to be. And for us, we need to make sure if we buy into that lie that, hey, if I live this life and it's all about me, then I'll be satisfied, we are starving our souls. And we are going to be very empty. We are going to be very hollow. And it's going to be a miserable life for us. But the other thing about this description, as he describes those people, is it can sound eerily similar to the world in which we live today, people who make it all about themselves. If we scroll through social media, does it seem like people might be making it all about themselves? Maybe, maybe, maybe we could say that. Or if we engage in conversation with other people, a lot of times when we engage in conversation, we're only interested in what we have to say. One of the things that scripture talks about later is slow to speak, quick to listen. One of the greatest gifts we can give people is to be a quick listener, a good listener. And then if you go into this foray, if you watch Fox News or CNN, um, it seems like Jude hits the nail on the head where it says, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude writes this thousands of years ago. The reason it's still true today is because it's, it's a picture of the human heart. And if we pursue ourselves, that's what happens. So this history lesson of example after example after example of individuals or groups of people who trusted with their own eyes and had no desire to contend for the faith, they starved themselves. They were destroyed. And if we're going to nourish our souls, then we must remember the call and fight for the faith as we say, it is all about Jesus. The third way that the soul is nourished is by fighting for others, or fighting for our hearts. Others comes next. 20 and 21, you see that. Uh, by God's grace, I'm entering this is my 13th year in youth ministry. Uh, and many times over the years, I've had parents send text messages, phone calls, conversations. Hey, can, can, can you have a few more talks that talk about not drinking, or not smoking, or not cussing, or um, sexual relations? Or can we have you know, conversations about, hey, how to be nice to your parents, or how to be nice to your siblings? Um, and the thing is that the heart of those requests or those conversations is a desire to just modify the behaviors for a period of time. And the thing is, is we want to make sure that we go to the heart. Because when the heart is changed, then the heart truly changes those behaviors. And they're not just modified for a period of time. And what Jude is kind enough to do is he's saying, we have to contend for our hearts. And we can see in Proverbs 4.23 and Luke 6.45 this same thing is it reminds us that everything flows from the heart, our thoughts, our actions, our words, and much more, where it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, none of us need to be medical doctors in here to know that if someone's heart is sick or stops beating, does it affect the rest of the body? Yes, and quickly. And that's the same thing in the spiritual sense, is that heart, when our spiritual heart is sick, it affects everything else. We can't have a sick heart and be healthy elsewhere. And so that is why we have to contend for the heart. And one of the things that I love about Jude is he doesn't just leave us 
here and say, okay, hey, that's it. He tells us how we contend for our hearts, and he talks about by being built up. And then we have to be built up. And one of the things, this past year, there's a hurricane in Florida at Mexico Beach. Some of y'all may have seen some of the pictures from that. There was a family that built a house differently than all the other houses around it. Um, you have all these things. Some of you may be familiar with it. You have building codes, requirements that either the state, the city, that you have to build a building or a house a certain way. Well, they exceeded all of those. They said, we're going to go beyond all of that. And as you see this picture of Mexico Beach, what stands out? The houses. Yeah, you see the one house that looks like, in a sense, nothing happened. And then what about all the other houses around it? They're, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to say it. They're trashed. No one's living there. They have to be completely rebuilt. And so that's the thing here for the Christian. The way in which we are built up is so important because, again, the foundation of any house is important, being built up in a proper way after that. Because the thing is, is we can build buildings quickly today, but it's not just, hey, here we go. Ten minutes later, we have an entire house. It takes time. You've got to go piece by piece. And some of those pieces that he mentions here in verses 20 and 21 is he starts with, we're beloved. It's remembering God's called us. It's remembering that calling, God loves me. There's one piece of the building. We pray in the Holy Spirit. There's another piece. I love the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, one of the things you have is you have the call to Abraham. And what's the promise that God makes to Abraham? That he'll give him descendants as what? as numerous as the stars in the sky. Um, what's the problem? Does Abraham have a descendant? No. <laughs> he has no kid, but God promises a son. And that son comes 25 years later, and, eventually, and there's a lot of sin along the way. He has that son, Isaac. And you know what's crazy? Isaac marries Rebecca. What does Rebecca struggle with? She struggles to get pregnant. And you see in Scripture, it says Isaac prays. And then you see that, you know, that Rebecca conceives, but what you read a few verses later is that from the time that Isaac started praying to when he stopped praying, it was 20 years. And for us, do we have the faith, the endurance, the ability to pray even when we don't get the answer immediately? Because the thing is, we are conditioned in our world to get something immediately. In prayer, it's not this immediate thing but it's this constant thing that we are in communication with God. The other thing that he talks about is that we, we have a merciful God. Um, that is huge. We talked about that earlier. There are so many reasons for God not to love us. Remember that we have a merciful God. He is, some of you may have parents who hold things over your heads. You may have a coach or a teacher who holds things over your heads and is pointing out your faults to you all the time. That is not our God. We have a merciful God. And when we know how merciful he is, Scripture even says what he does with our sins, he separates us as far as the east is from the west. We need to make sure that we know that. And then we have the word of God. It's one of the things I love about RYM. All the RYM camps, we begin the morning in the word of God. Because for many of my students, I would imagine your schedules are similar. School, their day doesn't just start when school starts at 8 o'clock. Most of the time, it may be practice at 6 or 6.30 in the morning. It may be going in for tutoring sessions or getting up early to study for tests. And then it's school till 3 o'clock. And then it's work, practice, come home, eat, catch up with the family, homework. And then you're in bed, 11, 12, 1 o'clock. And then it's turn around and do the same thing over again. And it's very easy for the Word of God to get squeezed out of a busy schedule. 
But one of the ways in which we are built up is as we are in the word of God. And then he tells us we also we have the righteousness of Christ by his blood. That's another piece of the building that helps fortify us. And he says we have eternal life. The world is not always going to be this way where sin still has a foothold. And there's more pieces that build the Christian up. We will talk about some of these pieces we just talked about here and others on Wednesday and Friday. But we are kept in the love of God. So as the storms come at us, all the pieces that God has used to build us up will help us to contend for our hearts. Because the thing is, we can't contend. The fourth thing, the way the soul is nourished, is by fighting for others. And we can't contend for others if we haven't already contended for our own heart. And so that fourth thing, like I said, fighting for others, you see it in verses 22 through 25. There's certain moments in life that stand out. And even for me, as I read scripture, there's certain moments where I can remember exactly where I was when I read a passage. And for me, Jude 22 through 25, I can remember I grew up in Texas, went to a camp called Pine Cove. And I remember sitting on this bluff overlooking this huge lake and coming to this and seeing these verses where it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And for me, this brought, that language brought up this picture of someone heading towards a fire. And hopefully none of us would be like, hey, I'm going to nudge you in. No, that natural response would be, I want to pull you out of this fire. And at the heart of contending in the Christian life is that overwhelming desire to pull others out of their hell-bound race. And God in his grace gives us that opportunity to be a part of his work in saving others. And verses 22 and 23 show us how we love and fight for others. The first thing it says, have mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Um, The Lord is going to place many people around us who are going to doubt the truths of the gospel. But the thing we have to remember, we too once doubted those truths of the gospel. So have mercy. And to the person who is still doubting God's love for them, he really is this good. He really is this merciful. And he will take you from being that individual who constantly has to pretend and allow you to contend in this life. The second way we love and fight for others is we show mercy with fear. As we love those who struggle in the midst of their sin, we need to make sure we don't forget how powerful sin is. Those same sins they're struggling with could take us down too. We can't underestimate the power of sin. We need others praying for us. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer. Those being built up things. Regular attendance at church as we minister to those who are caught under the domain of darkness. And then the third thing that they say as we fight for others, Jude says, hate even the garments stained by the flesh. Some could read this and wrongly, saying that this is a message don't associate with those that that live sinful lives. That is not what this is saying. Um, Rather, it's a call for us to hate what sin is doing in their lives, hate the fact that sin is keeping them from God, hate that sin is making life more difficult. For those living the party life, don't hate them. Hate the destruction that sin is causing in their lives. Um, For those caught in the struggle of homosexuality, don't hate them. Hate what sin is doing to them. I think sometimes in the Christian world, this is where we have struggled, is a lot of times we will project or hate the individual rather than hate the sin that is causing so much pain. And what Jude wants us to be is he wants us to be sympathetic like our Heavenly Father to the pain and misery that sin brings. So as we contend for others, it will help us contend in the Christian life. 
so that this truth will become true for them as it is for us. And one of the things that I love that Jude does is you'll see in verses 24 and 25, you get a doxology. So you may be familiar with a benediction. Um, he says this to kind of sum it all up. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And I love how he says here, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. And we thank you, Lord, for this brief book, Lord, written by your half-brother. And Lord, we pray that the truth of it would settle into our hearts so that we would remember what you have called us from. And Lord, that that would lay that foundation. Lord God, so that we would fight for the faith, that we would fight for our hearts. And Lord God, that we would fight for others, that we would see others this week pulled from their hell-bound race and embrace the truth of the gospel. Lord God, do a great work this week. And Holy Spirit, for those in this room that know you, strengthen us, encourage us. Lord, help us to contend. Help us not to pretend. We love and need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.